You're in conversation with Clayton, and it is just wonderful to have a chat to a lady who we've become very familiar on our TV screens, perhaps most through The Chase. Uh, she's one of the stars of that show. Uh, you might know her as the governess there, but we're going to talk to her through her proper name. Anne Hegarty joins me right now. How are you, Anne? I'm absolutely fine. How are you? I'm doing really, really well, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be able to have a chat to you. I'm looking forward to uh, covering off a whole lot of your life. But let's start with perhaps what is most well known. Um, was there a love of quizzes and these sorts of things as you, you grew up? Was that something you were always great at? Uh, not exactly quizzing. I don't remember doing much of it as a child. Uh, but I just simply was always this nerdy child that wanted to read a lot. Uh, and, and wanted to know things. Um, and uh, I remember as a child, there was um, at school, there was a staircase with a load of photographs uh, up it of uh, recent monarchs. Um, and I noticed that um, between that, that it went straight from George the Sixth to George the Fifth. And I thought to myself, you know what, well, hang on, I think I've heard a story about there being another king in the middle of that. Um, and I went and looked, and yes, there was, there was an Edward VIII. Okay, well, clearly these people are not actually going to teach me the facts, so I'd better learn them myself. So um, I began reading about uh, monarchs of, of England, uh, and um, it sort of gradually dawned on me that I actually now knew, I, I could actually name all the monarchs and their, their dates of their reign. Um, and it was just simply that I was interested in, in, in learning and things tend, things have always tended to sort of stick in my mind, yeah. especially if I read them. Yeah. I, I so, uh, yeah, I just kind of, you know, learnt, learnt lists like that. Yeah. So clearly, Very sad, really. No, no, no. I think it's wonderful. It's clearly curiosity is a big part of that. It seems like there was a, a slight touch of cynicism as well in the healthy way, I suppose, not looking at it in the negative way. Is, is that something that's helpful for you as you sort of go, well, I'm not quite sure I know all of that, so let me go and dig into it. Is that an important thing, you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, um, I, I've recently reconnected with um, some people that I went to primary school with. Um, and we've all agreed it was a fairly rubbish school, to be honest. Um, and, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff that we didn't get taught. And some stuff we did get taught was badly taught. Um, and my feeling, certainly, even as a child, was I'm going to need to supplement this. You know, I'm going to need to actually read some books. My father had brought home um, the 12 volumes of the children's, not the children's, encyclopedia, the children's Britannica. Um, which I read a lot of. Um, and I also read the Children's Encyclopedia, which is a much older book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was just curious, and I just wanted to read things. Yeah, I love that. Um, the, the heart pretty early on, as far as I can understand, was you thinking, look, maybe journalism's the idea. Was, was that from the love of reading? You thought, well, actually, journalism I might be my, my step here? I'd sort of always vaguely thought uh, as a child that I was going to be a writer when I grew up because uh, I just read such a lot of books. Um, and also my grandfather was a publisher, so I knew that there were such things as authors. Um, I also knew, because everyone in my family made it clear to me, that authors didn't seem to make much money from writing their books. <laughs> yeah. um, so everyone was rather disapproving of that. And I thought, well, you know, there is this job called journalism. If you want to write, you can write stuff in newspapers. Um, I did that for about 10 years and then realized, 
um, I didn't like being edited. Uh, I wanted to do the editing. So that's when I moved into um, the publishing side um, and began uh, copy editing and proofreading yeah. uh, books before they were published. Yeah. Um, and uh, found I was a lot more interested in that. Yeah, there you go. Um, and in terms of, you know, I read a little bit around some of your story that you, you had a heart to say, even as you were young, look, I'm going to uh, prove people wrong about some of the things in my life. And I want to talk about that in a moment too. But that you thought, well, maybe one day mm-hmm. I, I might be famous. Is, that might be part of what, what I get to here. And, um, you know, did you expect it to, to be along more that writing line than perhaps the world of television and pantomime and these sorts of things? Yes, I, I suppose I did. I, I, I just thought I'm going to be either a writer or I'm going to be an artist. I used to draw faces a lot. Um, not real faces, just fa- invented faces. Yeah. I couldn't really draw anything else. I mean, I would never really have been an artist because I was extremely limited. Um, but uh, there was that, or, or I'm going to be an actress, or I'm going to be a singer. Um, I don't have a very powerful voice. I can carry a tune. But it's a very weak, very light voice. So honestly, I would never have been a singer. Yeah. Um, but just this feeling of, I don't know, just this feeling of um, if you're famous, then you sort of exist and people know you exist. I always had this feeling as a child uh, of just being extremely overlooked. Um, and, uh, you know, my ego didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> now that- and then I thought, you know, I thought I'd got over it for, for years. I thought, right, stop being a writer. I'm going to be a proofreader. Nobody ever gets famous proofreading, but I'm over that desire of fame. And then, uh, you know, no, actually, no, I wasn't. I really do like being famous. <laughs> it's awful, but I do. No, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, had, I uh, hosted an event this last weekend and I got off stage and I said to my wife, gee, I... I love just being up in the in the centre of it all up there. It's there's something about it. Oh yeah, it you're, yeah, you're absolutely. <laughs> now, now you know you said sort of acting and a bit of singing there too. You, you've actually done quite a bit of pantomime and acting. Uh, you know, we obviously know throughout the UK, pantomime is much bigger than here in, in Australia, and you've done that for a while. It too. is. Um, yes, I have. Uh, my first one, I think, was 2014. And um, the thing is, at Christmas, it is a big thing, and it's particularly a big thing for the theatres. Um, the average provincial theatre gets about 40% of its annual revenue from the Christmas pantomime. I mean, that basically bankrolls everything else. So, um, yeah, people do put a lot of effort into pantomime. There are several big production companies um, that do pantos every Christmas. And, uh, you know, it is quite a big deal. And uh, to be perfectly honest, um, certainly once you've achieved a certain level of fame, it pays pretty well, I have to say. I like that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, how you actually got into the world of sort of television quiz shows and these sorts of things. I'm assuming that you must have got to a level in actual, you know, someone must have noticed the fact that, hey, you're pretty good at this sort of stuff and tested you through and goes, yeah. can you tell us that story? It, it sort of happened almost accidentally, to be honest. I mean, in uh, the late 1980s, as I say, you know, I, I like to read a lot. Um, and being on the autistic spectrum can mean that you get absolutely obsessed with things. Uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll get curious about something and you'll follow it down an absolute rabbit hole. And, of course, it's easier to do that now with the Internet. But even in the 80s, I was the sort of person who would get fascinated by things. And I remember becoming fascinated by the life and work of songwriter Lawrence Hart. Uh, before there was Rogers and Hammerstein, there was Rogers and Hart. Um, and I found him such an interesting person and began reading and reading and reading about him. 
And I gradually came to realize I've got a specialist subject, <laughs> which said to me, you could go on Mastermind, which is this um, very prominent British TV show. I don't know if they ever show it in Australia. Yeah, we actually um, recently but, got uh, an Australian edition, so yes. Oh, well, excellent. Well, you know what I mean about specialist subjects, then. Um, so I thought, you know, I'll apply for that, um, and I did. It's much easier to get on Mastermind if you're female. They are always looking out for females. <laughs> so I got on. Um, I lost in the first round by one point, um, and I was sort of a bit disappointed, but at the same time, I'd found out that there was um, a thing you can join once you actually sat in the black chair called the Mastermind Club. So I thought, all right, I'll join that. Um, and they would, uh, they have this magazine four times a year that had quizzes in. And once a year, there would be um, a weekend away in some um, some seaside resort. Um, and um, there's uh, a quiz that's done once a year. Um, they have two rounds in, in the magazine called the Master Quiz. Um, and um, you, you do that quiz, and then the top nine people go through to a thing called the Magnum Quiz, which is held at that weekend. Um, and I always felt, you know, this is like the most prestigious quiz there is. Um, and for a long time, I thought, you know, what, I absolutely daren't have a go at this because um, I would just do so badly. And the, what was bothering me was that the scores were made public wow. uh, and they were actually published in the magazine. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to be utterly humiliated. I really must not go anywhere near this quiz. And then about 2006, I said to myself, do you know what? Yes, you're probably going to be rubbish. You will be humiliated. It doesn't matter. Just have a go. Just do it anyway. You know, you've seen those results published. You've made it, you know, you've noticed whose names are always at the bottom. And you don't care. You know, these are people that you are friends with when you meet them. So nobody is going to care. You know, just go ahead and do it anyway. I think it's important I didn't say to myself, have a go. You might surprise yourself. You might yes. be better than you think. Yes, yes. I never thought that. I genuinely thought, I'm going to be so rubbish, but it doesn't matter. And I gave it a go. And to my absolute amazement, I made the top nine um, and uh, got about halfway through the magnet before I, before I was kicked out. Um, it's a sort of elimination quiz. Yes. And I thought, you know what, I didn't do that badly. Um, and then um, a couple of years later, um, I did it again and made, I didn't just make the Magnum, I actually made the final of the Magnum. Um, so that was a point at which I thought, you know, I might be okay at this. But then uh, it, what really happened was that someone, um, someone new came along to a, a Mastermind Club meeting and she told me what I hadn't known before, that there was a high-level quizzing circuit in the UK. And here was the website, and I went and looked at it, and I realized that they did big quizzes once a month somewhere in the English Midlands, and that there was one uh, the following month not that far from me. So I signed up on the website and said I'd like to come along to this, and I went along. Um, and I did not badly. Um, I surprised myself because it was, it was difficult, and I, was, I, I opened – it's a written paper – um, and I opened it and thought, oh, my goodness, I'm so out of my depth. Um, but uh, I gave it a go anyway. And another thing that was happening was the BBC, not ITV, the BBC were there auditioning for the second series of something called Are You an Egghead? I don't think you have to show eggheads in Australia, or do you? No, we, no, we do just have, we, we've, seen, no. we've seen some of the UK eggheads, that's all, yes. 
Right, you had. Well, uh, in those days, it was on um, the BBC, and it was the only way that you know a professional quizzer could actually kind of get a job on TV. So I thought, yeah, okay, let's give this a go. Um, and I got on. Again, they were desperate for winning, and I got on. Um, and I kept winning until I got to the semi-final, um, and then it was a very close concept, uh, contest, um, but I just narrowly got, got knocked out. Uh, so in a, it was the second semi-final, so I will say I came third. Um, and I thought, oh, well, you know, never mind. Um, but I, I mean, you know, I intended to go on enjoying um, this new quiz community I found. Um, and uh, the following uh, following month, I went to the British end of the World Championships, um, which um, in which uh, I did pretty well. Um, and then um, I went to the bar to get a drink before lunch and as I stepped inside the bar I was greeted by what I've since described as the largest man I'd ever seen in my life and he said hi my name is Mark Labette you beat me last month who are you <laughs> um so um I talked to him and he said um I've just finished recording the pilot series of this show um, and he described the format for chasing me. And of course, I didn't understand it because you never understand the format of a game show when it's told to you. You have to watch it. Um, he said, you know, you should watch it. It's going to be really good. So I did watch it. What I hadn't realized was the quitting community is quite small and everyone knows everyone else. And um, although Are You an Egghead was not going to be shown for six months, the quitting community knew how I'd done on it. And people were starting to talk about you know what, they need a female chaser. If that show gets picked up, um, we might just possibly have found our female chaser. Um, and, uh, you know, I began hearing big rumors over the summer. Um, so in autumn, um, I applied for the job and they saw me a few times. And then the following January, it was like, yeah, okay, we want you. And we, wasn't, we weren't at all sure, you know, how well it was going to do. Um, I mean, I was very naive. I just automatically assumed it was going to be a hit. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that it was a hit was a surprise to everyone else who knew more about television than I did. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of kept going from there, That's basically. Exactly. That's exactly. And what year was that that it that started for you? What year was that? Um, I got given the, the the show. The original pilot series with just Mark and Sean went out in uh, June 2009. Um, and that was the same year as the first World Championships yes. I ever did. And then I got offered the job in January 2010. Excellent. And we filmed um, we filmed the second series in April and May. Wonderful stuff. Just incredible. My, my guest, yeah. Yeah, my guest on In Conversation this evening is Anne Hegarty. We've been hearing some of her story of uh, being on the chase. And I want to follow up a little bit more that she, she mentioned there as well about understanding her, her own self with the autist, autistic spectrum. She mentioned that. And a little bit about how faith plays a role in her life as well. On the way next here on 89.9 The Light. 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and Anne Hegarty, one of the chasers on uh, the TV show The Chase. Uh, you might know her as the governess, uh, is joining me. We're talking about a whole host of various parts of her life. We've got plenty more to talk through. Just briefly, uh, we heard about how you got on to that show just in our a couple of minutes ago, Anne, but um, the, mm -hmm. the the phrase "the governess" and I suppose the character of it—I mean, it's part of your skill of acting. And how did that come about? Um, well, what happened was that for the first series, um, Mark, when he joined, this was just the first pilot series with just Mark and Sean, only ten episodes, um, and Mark 
trying to be helpful, said to the producers, um, you know, our family surname is Labette, and uh, all the men in my family are really tall and, and you know, big built. Uh, and Labette is the French for the beast. And so we have this family nickname of the beast. And if you like, um, you know, you can use that if, if it helps to, to um, sort of promote the show. And then for the second series, um, the producers decided they wanted us all to have nicknames. Um, and they wanted me to be the headmistress. And I was like, oh, okay, sounds great. Uh, and I remember Mark saying to me, you should choose your own nickname, otherwise they will impose one on you that you don't like. So I thought, fine, fine, I'm going to be the headmistress. And then during, um, during rehearsals, because it was a year since the boys had done the show, and I hadn't done it at all. Um, so during rehearsals, we did these rehearsals. Um, and um, Bradley, I noticed, began calling me the governess. Um, and I said to the producers, could I, could I be called that instead? Um, and I think what appealed to me about it was a governess is much more of a free agent. A governess is like Mary Poppins. You know, she can do whatever she likes. A headmistress is bound by the board of governors. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she's essentially, she's a sort of salaried employee, whereas a governess can just kind of take off when the wind changes. Um, so I thought, no, I'd rather be a governess, I think. And I suppose the character, um, she was a bit based on one of my grandmothers and a bit based on one of my aunts and a bit based on um, uh, the headmaster's wife at at my secondary school. Um, And uh, she's become, I think originally I wanted her to be sort of nastier and creepier. Um, I wanted her to be a bit more like um, Dolores Umbridge in Harry Potter. Um, and somebody a few years ago, some American actually, um, said that my character was McGonagall-ish. And I thought, yeah, she has, she has moved from being Umbridge to being McGonagall. And I, I, I'd rather be McGonagall, really. I mean, she's a goodie, for one yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, you're, you're sort of, it's difficult to kind of work out how far you're going to be the baddie. Yes, um, yes. I mean, uh, you know, Mark and I both do panto. Um, I've recently I've started not playing villains quite so much. I mean, last Christmas I wasn't the villain. I was um, I was the fairy. Um, I was a bit of an irritable fairy, uh, but uh, but I wasn't actually strictly the character that you boo. And then this uh, this Christmas I'm going to be doing um, Aladdin. But again, I'm not the villain who is Abenaza. I'm I'm the Empress who is the who is Princess Jasmine's mother. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sort of possibly mo- getting a bit away from being villains. Like Not that I don't like being no, villains, but, you know, it's nice to have a bit of a bit of, um, variation. I like it. I love it. Um, now, it, one thing that you did mention, as we talked about before, that um, you understood as you, you went on in life, and I, maybe it was late for perhaps some, but I think it was in about the mid-40s for you, that you realised that yes. actually you might be on the, the autism, autism spectrum as well. Could you take us through what, I suppose, the discovery, but then... What's that meant for you to understand that about yourself? Well, I was born in 1958. And in those days, um, autism meant, you know, you didn't speak, you barely moved, you just sat in the corner rocking and you didn't communicate. Uh, And I was a very chatty toddler who sort of ran about climb trees and and, um, wanted to ask questions a lot. So although, I mean, it was obvious to everyone there was something off about me and it was obvious to me um and my mother uh, was a social worker who 
specialised in um, psychiatric social work and also in child services. So um, she knew how to, to get me sort of seen by child psychiatrists. Um, and um, when I was um, 12, I think, I was, they decided that the, the, the diagnosis for me was maladjusted, um, which, I mean, I, I, I later found out is um, associated more with um, little boys with criminal tendencies. Um, and I mean, I, I wasn't that. I was just sort of weird. Um, and people couldn't quite figure out how. Uh, but in the 1990s, um, a, um, a psychiatrist called Lorna Wing began investigating the work that uh, Hans Asperger had done with the kids and realized that what um, had come to be known as Asperger's syndrome was actually, um, it mapped onto the work that Kanna had done with autistic children in the 1940s. It was just that they were sort of on a different place on what she called a spectrum. And that was how the idea of the autistic spectrum was born. And people began to realize you could be autistic and still, you know, a talkative child. Um, and I began, I, it was in the mid 2000, 2003, so I was uh, 45. Um, and I don't know, I saw something on TV that just kind of resonated with me. And I began doing a bit of research. Um, and I remember writing in my diary, I think I may have made the most important discovery of my life. Um, and, you know, the more I read about it, the more I think, yeah, I think this is real. And I thought, well, you know, I wanted a diagnosis. I thought, you can't just kind of help yourself to this. Um, it's got to be, you have to submit your judgment to the judgment of experts. Because, you know, I could have been wrong. I might have been mistaken. I think it's important to consider one might be mistaken. And there might be some other explanation for what one is thinking. So I thought, I, you know, I really need a specialist to say whether I'm right about this or not. And it took about two years. But, um, yeah, I got the diagnosis. And, and what has it meant knowing that? I suppose different from before you knew that about yourself to now knowing it about yourself. I think I sort of, uh, it's hard to say, in a sense I've sort of gone easier on myself. Uh, thinking, okay, there's an explanation for why this is a problem. Um, while at the same time, you know, I don't really, maybe because I was brought up Scottish and they're very stern, but, uh, you know, I don't believe in making excuses. Yep. Um, if there's something that you need to do, then you need to do it and you need to find a way to, to make it possible for yourself. I mean, I tend to be very, ah, I'm, I'm a slow thinker. I'm, you know, I'm quite good at thinking, but I do it quite slowly and I need time and space to do it. Um, so I have to kind of keep in my mind, um, you know, am I giving myself enough time and space to do this? But also, am I taking too long? Am I just being lazy and putting things off? Um, and trying to say to myself, okay, you know, you have to, I'm trying to, to sort of say, right, you do half an hour of this thing a day, every single day, and then you will start to plow through it rather than just leaving it there because it sort of feels like you've got a mountain to climb. You know, do half an hour of this and half an hour of that and half an hour of the other thing. Um, and then you actually sort of start tackling things. Um, autistic people have a thing called executive dysfunction, which means we find it hard to actually tackle things. Um, so I have to say to myself, you don't have to do much, but you should do a bit of it every day and you should start now. Um, 
the one thing I don't need to do that with is quizzing. I mean, quizzing is just sort of, it's a leisure activity. It's something I do when I just sort of want to rest my brain. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and I'll have a cup of tea and do some quizzes on the internet, uh, which is bizarre because, you know, this is what I make a living from. But uh, the quizzing, no, the quizzing is the easy bit. The quizzing is relaxing. Everything else is difficult. Yeah. Getting myself actually up and showered and dried and dressed is harder work than quizzing. Yeah, I get you. Oh, it's great that you found that thing that you're just, it's a natural love, which is great too. Um, and I, I wanted mm-hmm. to also so lucky. Uh, Yeah, I also wanted to ask you, we, we have a, a Christian base to what our radio station is, and I know that um, you profess a, a faith in Jesus as well. So can mm-hmm. you take us through, mm-hmm. um, when did that, uh, was that a, a part of childhood? Was that something you've, and what does that mean, I suppose? It was absolutely not a part of childhood. I, I come from sort of several generations of um, atheists. Or in one, one of my great-great-grandfathers was quite a famous um, Protestant activist in Northern Ireland. Um, but I think for him it was just a sort of matter of identity. Rather than, I don't know, I'm not sort of awfully proud of him, I must say, because I think he was a bit of a, a bit of a not nice person. Gotcha. Um, but uh, no, basically, uh, it was not something that was ever talked about in my family. Um, and I, um, but I always enjoyed the Narnia books um, and wanted to know more about C.S. Lewis. And I have to say, he essentially is kind of my guru. Mm. Um, I started reading his uh, theological, well, not theological, but apologetic books in um, in my late teens, um, and reading the Bible and keeping very quiet about it. Enough, none of this sort of thing was ever talked about at home. Yeah. And I started thinking, you know, I I I can't actually find any arguments against this. Uh, everything that he's saying makes sense, and, and you know what I'm seeing in the Bible makes sense. And then I just simply spent several decades just sort of kicking my heels, thinking, I have absolutely no idea how to progress this. Uh, and just sort of hanging around, sort of waiting, thinking maybe something will happen to make this happen. Maybe, you know, some, maybe, I don't know, maybe Prince Albert of Monaco, who's a few months older than me, maybe he'll fall in love with me and say, I want to marry you, but you have to, you have to become a Catholic. And I'll be like, oh, well, okay, and then if I have to, then I have to. You know, I want yeah. something else to make it happen. Yeah. Um, rather than me having to do anything. And then, uh, because I just simply did not, you know, there was no, how should I put it, it was no sort of emotional model for me to follow. There was no, I just simply had never seen this happen, if you see what I mean. Um, And then um, my mother died. And I I, want to be clear, I didn't think to myself, you know, oh, I want the comfort of knowing that there's an afterlife or anything like that. None of it was about comfort. Uh, It was always about what I actually had a feeling was probably true because it made sense. But my mother hadn't died. I thought to myself, you know what? While I'm feeling, while my emotions are this up in the air, and while I have no idea how to feel about anything at the moment, this could be the moment at which to do it. And uh, the circumstances of my mother's death were um, unpleasant, and I shan't go into detail, but... um, I was angry with people, um, and something inside me said to me, right now, while every, it feels like everything has been ripped away from you uh, by unkind people who don't care about you, while you feel like this, this is the exact moment at which you have to give something 
to, to one of them. While you don't feel you have anything to give, this is the moment to give something. And I had a photograph of my mother as a teenager. Um, I had two photographs. Um, and I thought, I can't bear to part with the nicer one. But the less nice one, I'm going to take to the funeral and give to my stepfather. Um, and I did. And I was told later that he was very um, struck by the fact that I'd done that. And he, after the funeral, he lay on his bed um, for hours just looking at the photo. And I thought to myself, okay, um, I've realized that he was very grateful for the photo. Now, this other nicer one, I can't bear to part with it. But what I could do is take it to an expert and get it photographed. And I thought, I know where there is an expert who, who does. I mean, this is long before, you know, you could just simply stick it in a printer. Yeah. Um, I know where there's an expert who does things like this. And I got on the bus um, and went there. And on the way, I passed a big, um, it was then, I think, a Jesuit church. It's now an oratory church. Uh, and there was a sign out saying, Mission here this Sunday. And I thought, I don't know what that means, but it sounds like maybe that's something I need. So I'll go to that. And I went to it, and it didn't really answer my questions, and there wasn't anyone to talk to. Um, so I thought, well, I'll go to the, the nearest Catholic church next Sunday. And again, it didn't really answer my questions, and there wasn't anyone to talk to. So um, I phoned um, the presbytery and just said in a sort of rather wobbly voice, um, um, I want to become a Christian. Um, and um, they phoned me back and said, you know, come on for a chat. Um, and that's basically what I did. And then I started going to the priest for chats. And then in the autumn, this is 1993, in the autumn, um, they started what's called the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, uh, which is a little course. Uh, and I must admit, I actually really hated that um, because... Um, there was an awful lot of fighting and squabbling and arguing. Um, and I did not enjoy that. Um, but anyway, uh, come Easter, yeah, I, I got received at the, at the Easter vigil, the big um, Saturday evening mass just before Easter Sunday. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's how that happened. That's incredible. And it, thank you so much for sharing, Anne. It, it my I suppose you know, I've taken up plenty of your time, so I'll, I'll probably finish on this question <laughs> here. But the the one for me would be then. So from that decision, how has that part of life and and your faith actually now impacted your world since then? Has it has it had a, a noticeable change to you? Um, I hope it has. I I, I think there's a very strong possibility it hasn't. Uh, you know, they say if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I'm sort of like, not quite sure. Um, I I hope I've become. I hope I sort of take myself a bit less seriously than I used to. But again, that could be because I had um, four years of psychotherapy in the late 1980s, and as a matter of fact, that might have been more. That might have had more impact than anything else. I think I find I, I'm never quite sure how my faith intersects with being autistic. And that's something I'd sort of like to work out a little bit more because um, people say to me, you know, do you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I'm like, well, insofar as I have a personal relationship with anybody, uh, because, you know, I'm autistic. I'm not very good at personal relationships. Um, I'm, I'm much better at sort of, you know, doing what I'm told and, and, and obeying the rules. Um, so, you know, it might be argued, it's, it's very much, 
my face might be argued to be really quite sort of cerebral, but then everything about me is cerebral. Yeah. So um, I'm doing my best. Yeah. Is uh, all I can say. No, I love it, and, and I think this is—I think it's a really good reminder, Anne, too, that um, often in society, and, and then especially in churches and in Christianity, sometimes from our perspective, we tend to expect that's what everyone else is to be. And I think what you've highlighted there is that. You know, God understands us. He He made you different to He made me, and me to someone yeah. else, right? And He knows that, and it's yeah. how we connect with Him, and and you know, absolutely, put Him first. Uh, that's yeah. what we need to do. Make sure we're following what He's asking us to do. But it, it's going to be different because yeah. we're actually different, and I think it's a it's a beautiful reminder. So thank yeah. you for that. No, I, I do think I think that because I'm a Christian, I think I do try harder than if I had if I'd learned about autism. Before I learned about Christianity, I think I'd be much lazier. I would just give myself permission to not do anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I do think, no, being autistic, don't make it an excuse. Yeah. You know, this is something you are obligated to do. Yeah. Uh, and things like, you know, I mean, I, I can imagine I would never, never bother to go to church mm. unless I already knew, no, that's something you have to do. And thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you. We thank you for the encouragement you've given so many and for being so open as well. I'm sure that's going to uh, encourage so many others. Thanks again for your time. That's okay. Thank you for asking me. And Hegarty, my guest here on 89.9 The Light.